weeks. We have Good Friday and um, on Easter Sunday. And uh, on Good Friday, we have three services, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and 7 o'clock. And so uh, just check that out there. It's going to be a great time. We'll have a time of worship. I'll give a short message. We'll have some prayer centers around the building. It's going to be a great time. In addition to that, on Easter Sunday, we are changing our services just a little bit. And so we'll have 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and 1 p.m. You'll notice in your bulletin that there is a card, an Easter card. Uh, That's not for you. That's for you to invite someone. All right, and so don't put it on your refrigerator. Uh, give it someone so they can put it on theirs. And so it's a, it's a time. Not every, a lot of people come to church on Easter. And so a lot of times folks just needed an invitation to come. And so feel free to invite someone, a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor. Just invite them. We'd love to, to have them with us. I also mentioned if you can come, ideally the 1 o'clock service is a time that we're hoping folks will come or the 9 o'clock service. We know each service is going to be packed. And just to let you know, we have a couple of overflow rooms. So um, that's, that's me telling you come early. Because if you don't get a seat, I've already told you, you come early because this place gets packed on Easter Sunday. And so we'll have probably over 2,000 people at our services uh, on Easter Sunday. And so just be, be mindful of that. We're looking at our seventh commandment today. We've just been methodically looking at these commandments. And we're at the commandment that says, uh, do not commit adultery. And from the beginning, I must say that this is uh, perhaps one of the more challenging of the commands Because many of us deeply know and have felt or observed the pain of betrayal. And it's a challenging command because this passage takes us right into our bedrooms. And many people think that's going too far. Now what complicates this for the church is over the years the church has not been blameless in this area. And pastors and leaders have committed moral failure over and over again. And so a message like this often comes out of an environment and a culture of hypocrisy. And yet with all that, we're called to hold on to the word of God together and listen to the voice of Jesus through these pages. Now, from time to time, I like to say that at New Life, we should have a sign in the front of our building that says, enter at your own risk, because we are inviting you to wrestle with realities and truth from the scriptures that's very easy to overlook. And I do actually want to begin by pointing to a particular link on our website. There's a link that says a newlife.nyc slash hope and healing. Last week's message on murder was a heavy message. Today's message is going to be a heavy message. Two weeks ago, we talked about honoring father and mother, which brought up a lot of uh, pain. Uh, and so we have Uh, a community, we have resources, we have leaders, we have ministries to serve you along those lines. And so if you go to newlife.nyc slash hope and healing, we have wonderful ministries uh, so that you don't have to walk alone on this journey. We want to serve you, we want to come alongside you, that you don't walk alone in that. So just take mention, make a a note of that uh, as we continue on our series through the Ten Commandments. But our passage today is actually very straightforward, much like Last week's passage was very straightforward. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, you shall not commit adultery. It's pretty straightforward. You shall not commit 
adultery. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, soften our hearts now through the power of your spirit. Give us illumination and revelation. And Lord, let us live in the freedom that you call us into. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. For whatever reason, stories of betrayal captivates our culture. When rumors went out that Jay-Z was cheating on Beyonce, people went crazy. When Bill Clinton was having sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, our country turned into a circus. But more than being intrigued by it, something strikes us to the core when we see a couple splits over infidelity because we long to see expressions of faithfulness. We long to see expressions of faithfulness. This is why I love the movie The Notebook, uh, if I can confess that. Can I confess that? I love the movie The Notebook. That's right. I said it. I love love stories. Sleepless in Seattle, Hitch, Aladdin. I I mean, I love love stories. But I love The Notebook. And at the end, it's, it's, it's quite a, a beautiful scene. What we see at the end of the notebook, there's an old woman who has dementia and an old man, and they're in each other's arms. And we find out that this is a married couple. The old man has loved his wife to the very end, and she doesn't know who he is. And finally, she comes to a moment of clarity, a moment of remembering who he is, and a final moment of recollection. And at the end of the movie, as they're in this uh, home, this, uh, they, they're in each other's arms, and, and they die in each other's arms, and it is just so beautiful, and it reminds us that we are all created for faithfulness. We were created for faithfulness. And at the core of this seventh commandment is a reminder of the call to faithfulness, as well as a reminder of the pain of betrayal. And yet what I want you to see throughout this sermon here is this core truth that I've been talking about the commandments were given because God wants to show what free people look like. Free people know how to rest. Free people cultivate and protect life. And for our time today, I'll say it this way, free people are bound to faithful love. Free people are bound to love faithfully. Now, our society is often determined by one's ability to do whatever you want. We say, I do whatever I want. It's my life. I'll do whatever I want. If it feels good, go for it. We live in a world in which we want to keep our options open. But God's ways are not our ways. We are called and bound to live by faithful love. And it is along those lines where we look at our text today in Exodus 20, verse 14. Now, as we've been exploring this series and these commandments, we have seen that the commandments are not arbitrary commandments. They are particular commands given by God to let people know what free people look like. 
The Ten Commandments were not given to free the people of God. The Ten Commandments were given to show what free people looked like. And so God does not give the Ten Commandments to his people while they're still in Egypt. He doesn't give them the commands and say, obey these things fully. And when you get these things right, then you will be rescued from the hands of Pharaoh. No, no, no. God in faithful love, God in compassionate mercy, God in his loving kindness rescues the people of God and then says, I want to show you what free people look like. Here are the commands that let the world know what free people look like. And so at the core of giving these commands... God is trying to set in place two particular things, identity and mission. God is saying, you've been shaped for 400 years with a particular identity, but now I've rescued you. Now I've freed you. There's a new way of being in the world. There's a new identity that you have, and this identity is not just for you. This identity is to be for the purpose of mission. You are to let the world know like. What's your mission? You are to let the world know what God is like because these commands reveal the character and heart of God. And so in the way that we live, people who have been redeemed by Jesus, we have a new identity in Jesus and we have a new mission. And one of those missions is to show the world what God looks like. And so he gives these commands. In a society that was surrounded by a culture of of slavery in Egypt, of lying, of murder, of nonstop work, of adultery, God says there's a different way to be in the world. Now, up to this point, the first six commandments seem reasonable. No other gods? Make sense. Don't make any idols? Cool. Don't take the Lord's name in vain? All right. Remember the Sabbath? Sure thing. Honor your father and mother. Uh, That makes sense. Don't murder. Okay, I'm with you. But then we get really intimate. Don't commit adultery. And this is where people, many people get stuck. We say, I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. You can't tell me what to do. I'll do whatever I want to do with my body. This is my body. I'll do whatever I want. At this point, we we might get, some of us might get a little defensive when we consider this command. Or for some of you, this commandment is hard to wrestle with because it exposes a lot of pain. Maybe your parents divorced because of adultery. Maybe you have divorced because of adultery. Uh, Maybe you have great shame because of some bad decisions that you've made. This command tends to trigger difficult moments in our lives. And yet by God's grace, we're called to reflect on the truth of this passage. We look at this seventh commandment. Now to wade through this, I really need to ask two questions. Two very simple questions. The first question is, what is adultery? And very simply stated, adultery is having sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. That's a baseline definition of what adultery is, having sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. But really, a second question is warranted that we need to ask. Why is it prohibited? We know what it is. Now, why is it prohibited. And for most people, the answer to that question, why is it prohibited, is very simply this. God hates fun. God's a killjoy. 
Everyone knows, the world knows that the best sex is illicit sex. It's, it's sex out there. That's what the movies tell us. That's what the soap operas show us. God hates fun. God's a killjoy. Think about the conversations you've had, I have, with people who don't have a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus Christ. When I say, why don't you turn, they say, why would I turn to him and let go of all pleasure, let go of all joy, let go of all delights? And what this response tells me is that God is often depicted as someone who wants us to be miserable, wants us to have no sense of joy, no sense of delight, failing to see that God is the author of sex, the author of ecstasy, the author of delight, the author of joy. And so to really talk about why it's prohibited, we have to talk about sex. Can we talk about sex in church? Is that okay? Can we talk? You're, you're talking about it anyway, okay? You're, you're talking about it anyway. Why not talk about it in church here? Now, before we talk about this here, we have to get clear about what we mean when we talk about sex. And the first thing I'll say is this, that sex is a powerful bond, not simply a way of expressing love. Sex is a powerful bond, not simply a way of expressing love. If it was simply an expression of love, like giving flowers or candy or holding hands or going on a romantic date, we think uh, no harm, no foul, all good. But sex is more than just an expression of love. Sex is a powerful act of bonding with another person. It's powerful. Think about it for a moment. Listen, I don't want to be Captain Obvious here, but the act of sex makes possible the creation of a human being made in the image of God. Amen. Now, I, I know you know this, but, I, but, but think about that for a moment. The act of sex makes possible the creation of a human being made in the image of God. That's powerful. That's creative. That's unbelievable. But beyond that, if you don't even factor that in to the equation, the act of sex is powerfully bonding. Now, there's a book by a sociologist named Randall Collins who said it this way, just thinking sociologically. He says, sex can produce the strongest of all forms of solidarity. Sexual intercourse is the ritual of love. It both creates and recreates the social tie and symbolizes it. Along those lines, another sociologist, Arlie Rothschild, and out of UC Berkeley, recounts a story of a woman who lived in a kind of community with others. Living communally, sharing all things, sharing drugs, sharing food, sharing clothes. And this woman was having a sexual relationship with the man and found out that there was another woman in the community having a sexual relationship with the same man. And she was sharing her food. She was sharing her drugs. She was sharing her clothes. Everything was fine. And then she found out that she was actually sharing this intimate relationship with this other woman and she could not take it. It says, as I quote, uh, she's tried to be okay with it, to see it as another form of sharing, but she described feeling horribly hurt 
lonely, depressed, and she couldn't shake the depression. She ended up leaving the community. Why? Because there's something profoundly powerful and profoundly delicate about sex. And yet we find ourselves in a culture living with a kind of obvious contradiction. On the one hand, many in our secular culture and many and increasingly many in our Christian culture believe that sex is neutral and as a result can be approached casually. That there's really no psychological or spiritual impact of sex. And yet we're recognizing at the same time increasingly so the incredible devastation of soul that occurs when someone is sexually violated. Now, for some of you that say, well, what if I'm complicit with someone? What if we're both complicit in here? Then then it's not damaging, right? And I'd say, no, 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 no. It is damaging if that act of sex is not found in an environment strong enough to sustain it a context strong enough to sustain its fire. And that context, very simply, is a vow and covenant of marriage. Because sex is a fire. Now, think about it this way. Fire can cause great harm or fire can cause great good. When you look in recent months at the wildfires in California, We see the absolute destruction that takes place when a fire gets out of a proper context to hold it, to nurture it, to harness it. We see the absolute devastation. At the same time, we see the absolute good that comes about when you see a fire within a proper context, within a fireplace, where you can warm your hands, where you can make marshmallows, where where you can enjoy family around the fireplace. These are two extremes that the world falls into and the church falls into. The world falls into the, the prior example that says, if you feel it, do it. If it feels good, do Don't live suppressing your passions. Do whatever you want. That's on one side. And then the church often responds on the other side extinguish the fire, put that thing out. You should not have any permission to light that fire. And so one is do whatever you want, let that fire burn. The other is extinguish it as fast as you can. Both are wrong. What we need is to cultivate that fire in an environment that's powerful enough to sustain it. Let me say it this way. The deeper the connection, the deeper the commitment must be. The deeper the connection, the deeper the commitment. And you don't get deeper a connection than someone having sex with another person. And because of the depth of that connection, it requires a depth of commitment to sustain and harness the fire. Listen, God longs for you to experience joy, delight, life. But God knows there are certain contexts and boundaries that are powerful enough to properly harness the power of sex. This is why a sermon like this applies to teenagers, 
20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 70-year-olds, first service, somebody said 80. I said, I hear that. I I hear that. (laughs) Abraham was 90. Okay, he was 90 in the Bible. Okay. And so we all need this message. Because it is, it, it's powerful. And when engaged apart from the bond and covenant of marriage, it will ultimately harm you. This is why, brothers and sisters, if you're living with someone and you're not married, you're doing harm to your soul. Because the deeper the connection, the deeper the commitment must be. And so sex bonds us. Which is why whenever relationships end in which there has been sexual intimacy, we find it so hard to separate from that person because something has bonded. And so sex bonds us on one end, but there's something else. That's sociologically, really. I want to show theologically, sex also bears witness to God and marriage bears witness to God. And so sex bonds us on one end And sex and marriage bears witness on the other. Sex and marriage point to another reality. When you got married, and I'm going to get to singles in a moment. When you got married, you didn't get married just for yourself. As a Christian, that's how the world gets married, for yourself. But as a Christian, you got married for the sake of the world. That when the world sees you, when people see your marriage... They see something of God's love for his people. This is why Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about husbands loving your wife and Christ and, all, and, and wives loving their husbands and all that there, he says, I, I'm not just talking about any, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Because your love, when overflowing, is to point to God's love for his people, Christ's love for the church. Your marriage is to be a sign of what's to come. When God fully and finally reigns, when Christ fully and finally reigns, it's a sign of what's to come. Now, for those of you who are single, let me say it this way. In the Bible, it says that when Jesus Christ fully and finally reigns, there will be no marriage because the people of God will be married to Jesus. We will be, we will finally bond with Jesus Christ. And so there will be no need for marriage because we are now, we have, we are at the marriage feast. But singles, if you're single, whether circumstantially because of you haven't met the right person, uh, you, you've been widowed, uh, what, whatever that means, or because you've chosen singleness, you have an opportunity in your singleness to experience the reality of what's to come. Marriage is a sign. Singleness, when done Offering, being married to Christ, you are already anticipating that reality. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want to honor your desire to get married. It doesn't mean that you are not going to get married. It doesn't mean that you're going to be single the rest of your life. Some of you, you're called to that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus Christ was single. Paul was single. There's no second-class citizens for singles. We all bring our respective positions and vocations in life. But as a single person, you can anticipate what is to come. Whether you're single, however, or married, our lives are to be a sign pointing to what's to come. 
And regardless of where you're at, you're, you're our first, this commandment at its core is about fidelity, loyalty, faithfulness. We are a sign. We are pointing to something else. And one of the ways that we demonstrate our worship to God is by being faithful to our spouse. One of the ways we, 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 we show our worship to God is by being faithful to our spouse. Now, to be faithful, I want to qualify this. To be faithful is not just about not committing adultery. Because you can stay out of somebody else's bed and still have a messed up marriage. I like how Chuck Gallagher has said it. Chuck Gallagher talked about faithfulness. He said, faithfulness is not just about staying out of someone else's bed, but loving the bed you're in. Oh, I feel like preaching now. Okay. (laughs) It's not just about staying out of someone else's bed, but loving the bed you're in. And yet the sad reality throughout the scriptures, throughout our lives, is time and time again, the people of God have failed. This is a theme throughout the Bible. And what we see in the Bible is that there's actually a a deep connection between idolatry and adultery. In Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, throughout the Old Testament, we see there's a connection. Whenever they got the, the relationship part wrong, they got the worship part wrong. That is deeply connected. And so do you see, because it bonds us, because it bears witness, do you see why it makes the list? Because you were created for faithful love. And when this is not the case, it grieves the heart of God. And it hurts our lives. Now, let me say this. Listen, as the pastor of this congregation, I am fully aware of the many stories of our congregation that has been marked by infidelity, marked by adultery. I'm very aware. I've met with many couples in my 11 years here at New Life that have been marked by pain, families damaged and destroyed. And I, it grieves my heart. I, I, I weep uh, with you. And if you're working through this now, listen, God's grace is sufficient. If you're battling betrayal, God's grace is, is sufficient. And for some of you, the betrayal has been so deep and so great, you can't think of any other option than to dissolve this marriage. And I understand And yet some of you feel called to to work this thing out. In either case, we exist as a church to support one another. This is why worship is so important. This is why coming to the Lord's table is so important. Why receiving prayer, why receiving ministry, while being part of a community, why hearing the word of God proclaimed is so important. We need each other. And yet having said all that, I believe this message is a message of warning as well. How do we find ourselves in a place where we actually can commit adultery? And I want to mention just three realities before us. I want to look at Jesus and then we'll come to the table of communion. Why are we tempted to commit adultery? The first reason I want to share with you very simply is this. We are often tempted to commit adultery because we have not learned to work through our differences. And so we act out. I can't tell you how many people I've met with that because of an inability to negotiate differences, an inability to speak out what they really feel, 
to speak out what's bothering them, to speak out their preferences. For some people, it is so hard to have a mature, adult, emotionally healthy conversation. The pain of of looking at someone face to face and being honest with them is so great that people would rather act out than to sit before someone and negotiate differences. And so many people act out not because they want to, but because the pain of actually having an adult conversation, a mature conversation about your preferences, about what you don't appreciate, about what you'd like to see change. For some people, it's so hard to be honest, so hard to have a mature conversation that the only thing is I get, I get so fed up. The only thing I know how to do is act out. And so this is why we exist as a church, brothers and sisters, to help all of us grow into emotional maturity, to help all of us grow into spiritual maturity, to have hard conversations, to state what you don't want, to state your true feelings about a matter. And time and time again, if we refuse to be honest with ourselves and honest with someone else, you will act out. It will become a manifestation of immaturity and an inability, an inability to actually be honest with yourself and honest with someone else. And so we are here to help us grow into maturity, to have the hard conversations before we act out. Secondly, what comes to mind is we, fought, we are tempted to commit adultery when we construct an idealized vision of love and marriage. That we have images in our mind of what marriage is. Images in our mind what love is. Idealized images. And then we say, I do. And then we get married. And then we go, what happened? (laughs) What's going on here? We we had a vision of what this thing was going to look like. And then it doesn't look like it. And so we think, this person failed me. No, no, no. We, we had the wrong image. Yes. We idealized something. This is why Stanley Harawas, a retired theologian at Duke Divinity School, he says it this way very provocatively, but I think he's right. He says, we always marry the wrong person. Some of you are saying, what? We, 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 we always marry the wrong person. Let me explain what he says. He he says it this way. He says, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. (laughs) For marriage being the enormous thing it is means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Oh, that's right. I know that's right. Listen, (laughs) Rosie and I have been married 13 years. I could tell you, she's been married to six different men. Six (laughs) different men. Uh Uh-huh. Who she got married to in that church in Brooklyn was different a couple years into it. And so how do, we, how do we now learn how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married to? 
And and it, it requires us to let go of the idealized visions. And what happens is very simply this. The idealized visions actually is a manifestation of a deeper idolatry. Because we expect someone to do for us what only God can. Now, we didn't say that when we got married. We didn't say, I'm going to put all my hopes and all my dreams and all my expectations and all my, uh, my sense of happiness on you. If we said it like that, we said, now, wait a second, hold on. <laughs> if that's what was said, I would have said, no, wait a second, I, I'm not signing up for this. I did not sign up for this. Because only God can love you perfectly. And if we expect a human being to do for us what only God can, when that person fails, you're ready to leave. The problem is not her or him. The problem is the vision that we had in our mind. That thing, this thing was supposed to be easy. And yet we've idealized something into idolatry. And now all of a sudden we find ourselves disoriented and disillusioned. Thirdly, why do we find ourselves often tempted to live this kind of life? Well, thirdly, we have fallen into the trap of addiction and destructive habits. We fall into the, the trap of addiction and destructive habits. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually quotes the Seventh Commandment, much like he did last week. When I preached about murder, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount picks up the same theme. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say unto you, anyone who holds, who is angry with a brother or sister. And the word I said in Greek is the word orgazomenos. It is this present continual tense word that says whoever is nurturing, whoever is harboring anger in their heart has already committed murder in their heart. Jesus does the same thing now. Right after he talks about murder, he talks about adultery. Listen to what he says. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, people would have heard this before Jesus said this. People would have said, I've been married 30 years. I, I, I've, I've, I've been faithful. I, I, I don't have any problems with this command. And Jesus deepens it. Jesus shows us the deeper reality of it and says, wait a second. It's not about just you just doing that. It's about the way that you think, the way, what are you harboring in your heart? And the same word that Jesus uses for anger is the same word he uses for lust. Jesus is not talking about just a a temporary glance at someone you find attractive. You're walking down the street, you see a good-looking man, you say, that man's good-looking. You keep walking. That's just saying, you just keep walking. (laughs) You see a beautiful woman walking down the street, go, well, that woman is beautiful, And and you keep on walking. You know what that makes you when you do that? Human. human. I know your boo said you should not find anybody else beautiful or husband or handsome. I know it's just, it's just, why are you looking at somebody? But, but, you know, it makes you human. Now, lust is not just glance and keep it moving. Lust, the word that Jesus uses here is the present continual tense. And basically he's saying this, Lust here is the deliberate harboring of desire 
for illicit relationship. You are meditating, contemplating, reflecting, strategizing, planning, mapping it out. Jesus says, when you're going down this road, you've already committed adultery in your hearts. God help us. And the reason why Jesus names this is because when we do that, at the core of what we're doing is using someone. We're using someone. People think hate is the opposite of love. That, I believe that's true. But you know what's also true of being the opposite? Using is the opposite of love. And when you use someone for your own gratification, Jesus is saying you have taken someone made in the image of God and you've made them an object for your consumption. This is why beyond just human relationships and such, this is why the porn industry is so destructive. Because there's this deliberate harboring of desire for illicit relationship. And the statistics are actually very troubling when we look at it this way. Here are some of the troubling statistics before us. It says porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. 35% of all internet downloads are porn related. 34% of internet users have been exposed to unwanted porn via ads, pop-ups, etc. People who admit to having extramarital affairs were over 300% more likely to admit consuming porn than to those who never had an affair. At least 30% of all data transferred across the internet is porn related. This is the sad reality of the world we live in. The structural and systemic evil that exists in our world. And with all of this before us, brothers and sisters, we can walk out of this church depressed. We can walk out of this church feeling great shame. But, but I want to just offer a word of hope to us. And the word of hope to us very simply is this, that adultery and the effects of it does not have to have the last word. There's another word that can be spoken over our lives. This does not have to have the last word. I'm reminded of John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, there's a woman who is caught in adultery. She's caught in adultery and the religious leaders grab her and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they look at Jesus and they say, this woman was caught in adultery. She, you know what the law says, she deserves to die. Now my question is, where's the man who was with her? That's, that's a, ah, uh, yeah, where's the man? Where's he at? Ah, uh, whatever, all right. And yet Jesus sees this situation and Jesus kneels down and Jesus begins to write in the sand. Now the question is, and the big debate is, what was Jesus writing in the sand? Well, uh, the debate might be a few things. He might have been writing the, the names of the religious leaders who were committing adultery themselves. Perhaps he was writing that there. Perhaps he was writing verses of mercy and forgiveness on the sand. Perhaps he was playing tic-tac-toe. I don't know what Jesus is doing. 
But after writing in the sand, Jesus stands up and says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stone and they walk away. Jesus looks at this woman who's been caught in adultery and says, woman, where, where are your accusers? Where are those who would condemn you? And she says, they're gone. And he looks at her and says, I don't condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is what I'm reminded of. I'm reminded that we are not saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're saved by his faithful love. Because the reality is all of us in this room have been unfaithful. At one point or another in our lives, we have been unfaithful. We are the woman caught in adultery. Every single one of us. And I'm reminded we are not saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus offers us forgiveness. And beyond offering us forgiveness, he offers us a new heart, a new way of having our own lives marked by faithfulness. And so here he is on the cross absorbing all of the unfaithfulness of the world on his body speaks out into an unfaithful generation. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. He dies. He buries that sin in the grave, rises in great power to offer us not just forgiveness but newness of life, to have our lives marked by faithfulness. We are not saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Let me invite you to close your eyes for a moment. We have all been unfaithful. We have all violated the ways of God. And thank God we're not saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus. I wonder today, what do you need to name? For some of you, you are in marriages that are crumbling. And it's more than just someone not committing adultery. Your your marriage is not flourishing. There's no passion, there's no joy. And God's word and mercy is for you as well. For some of you, you you're experiencing the pain of being sinned against. For some of you, you're experiencing the shame of sinning against someone. And to all of us who find ourselves in these situations, the gospel reminds us that God's grace is for all of us. Does that mean there's no consequences? Not at all. But God's grace is for all of us. Lord Jesus, 
you are the faithful one, the one who continually pursues us. Your word says, when we are faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. That is, you cannot live in a way that's inconsistent with your very character. In your very character, you are faithful. Now, Lord, pour out mercy as we offer you repentance, as we offer our cries for mercy, as we confess our sin. Grant mercy, grant grace, grant wholeness. Grant, Lord, healing power. And we come to this table of communion, not based on our faithfulness, but your faithfulness. We come to the table of communion, not based on our performance, but your performance. We don't come to this table based on our record, but your record. Now, Lord, heal us. Set us free. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. And before we come to the table, I want to invite folks to come to the table. And before we come to the table, I want us to pray a prayer of confession. If you can put that prayer on the screen there. And the ushers will lead you down here to take bread and dip it in a cup. And then I want to invite you just to dip it there, go back to your seat and just hold it. And as you hold it, remember the faithful love of Jesus Christ. We're going to pray this prayer of confession and uh, if I can have someone who's just going to offer the bread in the cup here. We pray this out together because we've all been unfaithful. That's why we pray it together. That's why we confess our sins together. There's, none, there's no person in this room who's been faithful all the time for their entire lives. We need the mercy of God together. And so as the people of God, let's pray this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own faults, in thoughts, in word, in deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Please come forward. I have this confidence because I've seen the faithfulness of God still inside the storm the promise of the show I trust the power of your word enough to seek your kingdom first beyond the barren place beyond the ocean waves when through the waters I won't be overcome when I go through the rivers 
promises you made. There isn't one that is delayed, so I will not lose heart. I will lift my arms and start to sing into the night. My praise will call the sun to rise, declare the battle won, declare Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for I've received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. As the people of God, forgiven by the faithful love of Jesus, let's all take together. the prayer team come to my left communion is important because it reminds us of the sacredness of Jesus's body and not only does it remind us of the sacredness of Jesus's body it reminds us of the sacredness of our own bodies as well that God comes into the into the flesh as a human being to sanctify our bodies to remind us that we don't belong to ourselves we belong to God entirety of our lives belong to God and so we have a prayer team here 
For some of you, you're having a really difficult time in your marriage. For some of you, single or married, you find yourself trapped in habits and addictions. And for those of you in particular who are struggling with pornography, sex addiction, I want to offer a word of grace to you. And it is this. Often the addictions that we have are our attempts to medicate our pain. And you've gone a long time with a lot of pain and you've run to things like pornography or drugs to medicate yourself, to make yourself not feel pain any longer. And yet God's word to you is there is a deeper healing that God wants to bring. You're only going to pacify that pain. Sooner or later, it's going to come back. But there's a deeper healing. Why do we say no to these addictive behaviors? Not because they're, they're, they're bad or whatever. It's because it's trying to do what only God can do. Only God can heal. And so for those of you struggling, listen, we have a community here, that, that link I showed you, but it begins with prayer. Whatever prayer needs you have, we'd, we'd love to pray for you. For your marriage, as if you're a single person, we want to proclaim the healing power of Jesus Christ over your life and over your marriage and over every situation you find yourself in. So our, our prayer team is here for whatever need you have. As we've done in the third service, you can really serve us. We have actually a marriage event after this service here. So if you can grab one chair and bring it to the side and grab one chair and bring it to the side, that'll really help us to get settled for uh, this marriage event that we have taking place here. But as we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We are saved not by our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. With your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the faithful love of Jesus Christ. And may those around you experience and taste some of the love of God through your very life. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the faithful name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you all.